Good morning. Our scripture reading today is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 15. I'd like to open with a prayer. Heavenly Father, as we gather in your presence, we ask your guidance and grace to open our hearts and minds as we hear your word. May the scripture we are about to explore illuminate our paths, bring wisdom and strength to our faith. In your holy name we pray, amen. Now, Matthew 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you, Ellen. So as we, uh, as we think about prayer, it's hard to think of a better text to reflect on this morning than when Jesus teaches us his prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And there was a special challenge for me this week because five or six years ago, I preached a, a, a series, a whole sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. I think it took me about two months to get through the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, I'm gonna do it in about 15 minutes. So buckle up. Um, we know, of course, and I mentioned this before, one service, one sermon can't change everything. It's not like this is going to be a silver bullet. But we do hope that this becomes a regular practice, and sometimes out of the ordinary public events can stimulate private devotion. We know that prayer is really in some way more about forming us than anything else. You know, we put uh, quotes on the covers of the programs every single week that seem appropriate. Let me just read you this one from Dallas Willard. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. He died, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. He wrote, prayer frequently requires much effort, continuous effort, 
and on some matters, possibly years of effort. Prayer is, above all, a means of forming character. It's kind of like um, if you go to the gym once a year, right? What's going to happen? Not a whole lot. You'll be, you might be, you'll be sore for a couple days because like, man, that was a mistake. And then never again. Until, until next January 1st and next January 2nd, whenever, you'll go and then you'll decide not to again. Right, if you go to the gym once a year, it's not really going to change you. Having one prayer service a year is, we know. But if you go to the gym every day for a year, what's going to happen? You will be a different person. In fact, if you go to the gym one day a year and do a three-hour workout, fine. But if you go to the gym just 15 minutes a day, every day for a year, it will transform you far more. Because prayer at its heart has more to do with how it forms and transforms us than anything else. I think this is part of the reason, you know, many of us feel guilty about prayer, and I think it's because we misunderstand this one fact. We feel we don't pray enough. We don't pray the right prayer. My word, I, it's awkward. I get distracted. I finally, I, I finally get up early. I didn't hit snooze, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to pray, and like 30 seconds later, I'm thinking about something completely different. The, uh, the, Purit- the early Puritan settlers in the U.S. in America had this amazing little phrase to help us through moments of that. They simply said, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. In other words, they they experienced the same thing and they didn't even have like Instagram to look at as soon as they woke up. And yet they, because there's something in the human condition that just, we get distracted. And they knew that in those moments when we don't feel like we're praying good enough or we're not praying enough or we're not... Just keep at it. Pray until you find yourself praying. This morning, I just want to spend a little bit of time thinking about the Lord's Prayer. I had mentioned to you earlier the structure, the wow, thanks, sorry, please, structure that can help. Some people find it helpful just to cycle through words, and that helps them to organize their prayers. Some people find it helpful just to pray through the Lord's Prayer. So as we think briefly about what Jesus teaches, you'll hear wow and thanks and sorry and please baked into the Lord's Prayer, as it were. We often struggle to pray. What do I pray? How do I pray? pray. Jesus teaches us. Pray like this. It doesn't have to be long or fancy. In fact, there are people who pray long prayers just so that other people see them praying long prayers. They, They have their reward, Jesus says. But when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven... That's an amazing little way to start a prayer. Our Father in heaven. It teaches us that God is both intimate and transcendent. He's intimate. He's our our Father. He wants to be known as personally as a Father. And we've thought about this. This has come up in a couple of sermons lately. That God as our loving Father is a protector. He's a caregiver. He's a comforter. He's a provider. We've been emphasizing a lot lately that that he's a father who, when he sees his children genuinely hurt, runs towards them. He doesn't run from them. 
And yet at the same time, he is both intimate and transcendent, our Father in heaven, in the heavens. He's greater than us. He's wiser than us. He, <laughs> we have to remind ourselves of this a lot. He knows things that we don't. So often our prayers seem to be, don't they? God, if you could just see things the way I see them. And by praying our Father in heaven, we are trusting that no, actually, he sees things that we don't. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, which is simply a way of saying, God, we want to hallow your name. We want to honor your name. That's all hallowed means. This is still actually a prayer of a child towards a father. Think about any kid at the playground. Children want to hallow their father's name. They don't use that language. On the playground, it sounds like this. My dad is the best. Or once they get a little bit older, my dad is stronger than your dad. What is that? That's hallowed be thy name. There's something in us that actually longs to answer to and to honor a God who is greater and stronger than we are. In that sense, you really can't pray, hallowed be thy name, without recognizing that God is, in fact, greater and stronger and wiser than we are. Which leads to the next phrase that Jesus teaches us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time I bring up this phrase, whether it's in a sermon or in a conversation or any time, it always jumps off the page to me that, and this doesn't work in Greek, but it works really well in English. Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, which stands in stark contrast to my kingdom come, my will be done. There's something in prayer that is a willing submission, a loving, a joyful submission to say, God, your kingdom's coming and I, I want whatever you want. And sometimes I don't want what you want, but I, at least I want to want what you want. This is getting like a Dr. Seuss book here. Like, God, I want to want what you want, which is a really good prayer, by the way. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a really good question here that people might ask. They would say, well, wait a minute. God, the Bible says God's kingdom is coming. So what good does it do for me to pray for something that God's doing anyway? And this is when we get to probably my favorite quote about prayer. It's kind of just a restatement of the Dallas Willard quote I mentioned earlier. That prayer is not about bending God's will towards ours. It's actually about bending our will towards God's. It's not saying, God, this is what I want, now you get in line. It's saying, God, what do you want? Help me to get in line with your will. Once our wills are aligned with God, we can, we can pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is probably the second hardest statement, at least for modern Westerners, in the Lord's Prayer. Because what we want to pray is give us this day tomorrow's bread. And obviously Jesus doesn't just literally mean bread. That can be included. For most of us, we're not worried about putting food on the table tonight. We've got food in our fridge. But we're worried about all sorts of things tomorrow, aren't we? 
We want God to give us today what we need for tomorrow, and God says, I will, I will take care of tomorrow tomorrow, and I will take care of it. Let's get through today first. This is actually a great mercy of God that he gives us today what we need for today and then tomorrow what we need for tomorrow. It's an incredible mercy that he doesn't give us tomorrow's bread today. You know why? Because so often when we get tomorrow's bread today, we wind up losing it. And it's, I don't mean that in the sense that you are irresponsible or you, what, I mean, maybe, but there are so many life circumstances, so many unknowns in the world. What if God gave you tomorrow's bread today and there were, and I, obviously we're using bread metaphorically, and there's a fire or you encounter thieves? There are so many ways that the things we have, to, we just lose the things we have today. They rust They rot. We experience floods. The market takes a downturn. We get injured. We wind up making a bad business deal. It looked really good on paper, but that person didn't actually follow through on their promise through no fault of my own. You made a bad investment or you were in the wrong time at the wrong place and there was a drunk driver and then it's lost. It is an act of mercy that God gives us exactly what we need for today, today. And tomorrow, he will give us what we need tomorrow. That's not to say you can't have enough to get through tomorrow. It's not literal. But it is to challenge each of us to accept and trust that God will give us tomorrow what we need tomorrow. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, obviously, again, this is a metaphor. Jesus is not talking about financial debts. He's talking about sin. And as we've mentioned already in this service, the good news about God, and this is stunning, especially in the landscape of every other religion in the world, that God gratuitously, foolishly from the outside forgives sin. It's not trendy. It's often not acceptable in a lot of circles to talk about sin or to use the word sin. And yet, I think for that very reason, that makes it a better word. It makes us cringe. It makes our skin crawl a little bit. And it's not because we want to be uncomfortable for the sake of being uncomfortable, but it teaches us that sin kills us. Sin will kill us. It destroys us. In some sense, we have to confront it. How do we confront it? Simple. Forgive us our sins. And he does. And he does. He longs to forgive. God wants to forgive. It's almost as if it's almost like you start saying, like, God, forgive me my, and he says, yes, but like, you can't even get the sentence out of your mouth. And he's so eager to forgive that he just jumps at the opportunity and cuts you off. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's the hardest statement in the Lord's Prayer. We don't nearly have time to get into it. 
Let me just say this. It's an expression that's meant to say, God, all the grace that you fill me with when you forgive me, give me that same grace to forgive the people who have hurt me and sinned against me. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Which is to say that there is temptation, there are trials, there is an evil one in the world. I'm paraphrasing him, but C.S. Lewis wrote that Satan's best trick is to convince you that he doesn't exist. In reality, he does. And we need God by our side because on our own, we're not strong enough. And God longs to shepherd us through those moments of suffering and pain and trial. It actually teaches us in a weird way that God doesn't want us to suffer. And you might say, but Chris, then why is there so much suffering in the world? And there, I, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> There's certainly no way to answer that in a very short sermon. But suffice it to say that God, even though he doesn't always deliver us in the way that we hope, he promises he is always with us in it. And let me venture to say that God never allows suffering if he doesn't envision something better on the far side of it. Think back to the image of going to the gym or an athlete going to their practice. How many athletes would describe their practice as a form of suffering? If they have a good coach, practice feels like suffering. Why do they endure the suffering? Because they will be better on the far side of the suffering. Why do we follow and walk with God even in our suffering? Even though it feels like he hasn't answered the prayer, deliver us from the evil one, I feel like I'm in the thick of it right now because God won't allow it if he doesn't have something better for you on the far side of it. If he doesn't intend to make you better through it. We don't always see how. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it something we start with, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Wow, we honor you. And we end with thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory. We end on the same note with which we started. That all of life is for God. We don't live unto ourselves. We don't live unto our family. We don't live unto our work. We don't live unto our reputation. We live unto the honor and the glory of God. Now, if you read between the lines of those you see, wow, thanks, sorry, please, which are just essential parts of any human relationship, and as it turns out, they are essential parts of our relationship with God, and let's just close with this. This is, this is just me restating the children's story. That if God invites us to pray some form of, wow, thanks, sorry, please. In other words, if he invites us to use the same conversations with him that we need with one another, that tells us that God longs to have a relationship with you. He's not a distant, 
dutiful God demanding that you check the boxes exactly as they're laid out. Dot every I, cross every T, and if you don't, will God have mercy on your soul? That's not him at all. He's a God who longs for relationship. He wants to know you. He loves you more than you can wrap your mind around. He wants you to know and receive his love and to grow in that. He wants to know you. He does know you. He wants you to know that you are known by him. He wants you to know him.